The dead period is over for recruiting. It's time to get back to stalking recruiting boards and seeing if your school can finish strong. And the Pac-12 is now in the same boat as the SEC. We're offering eighth graders. There are new hires, coaching hires in the Pac-12, head coaches and offensive coordinators. What is going on with the Pac-12 schedules? Did the conference schedule for success or did they schedule for parity? Pac-12 basketball is in the heat of things. How many teams will make the tournament and who will it be? And we talk about the GOAT, Sabrina Ionescu. I'm George Reister with Ralph Amson, and this is the Pac-12 Apostles. Thank you guys for listening to the Pac-12 Apostles. This is an Unafraid Show production. And if you guys want to send us an email, send it to imad at unafraidshow.com. I-M-M-A-D at unafraidshow.com. We thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy. Please leave a a, a five-star rating. And also make sure you share the Pac-12 podcast because this is a podcast for Pac-12 fans, by Pac-12 fans, that you're going to get the truth, you're going to get the honesty, and it's not going to be sugarcoated. We are here to bring the real Hopefully we entertain you and with and brought to you by Great Sound. <laughs> What's up, Ralph? Not much, man. I, I heard you had a late night. Man, see, it, it makes <laughs> as much as you know, we live on the West Coast, we have a lot of late games. And I am watching all the games. Watch NBA games, college basketball games, all of this. And the baby is already asleep. Because if, if I've already talked about it, I, I have a eight-month-old infant. And he had been sleeping marvelously. And last last night, ah, 2.30 to 5.30, no problem. I'll just stay up. You know, it, was, it wasn't party time. He was upset. So it was just a miserable night. But you know what? We are true entertainers, Ralph. The, 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 the show must go on. Yeah, I suppose so. I'm, I'm, my, uh, my youngest is four, and she still crawls into bed with us and kicks me out in the middle of the night. Like, I mean, I, I just don't have the energy. You know, I, t- I tell some parents, I tell people who are not parents that like my four year old, like governs how we sleep. And they're just like, how could you like bend to the will of a child? It's like, cause man, it's three 30 in the morning. Like if I'm getting kicked in the face at three 30 in the morning, I'm going to move to a place where I'm not getting kicked in the face. Like, <laughs> I'm yeah, gonna go and you're, you're uh, like, lay on the couch in our loft. The, yeah, you're taking the path of least resistance at three I tried in to, the morning. I tried to like pick her up once and carry her out of the bedroom, uh, back to her bed, like that, all groggy at that time of night. And I'm pretty sure I hit her head against the door frame on the way out of my room. So I'm like, <laughs> all right, well, you know, if she's gonna put this effort into coming, you know, to our pillow top. <laughs> like if she she wants to be comfortable whatever i don't care i'll I'll sleep anywhere so uh yeah i i, I but my, my wife's another story like if she gets in my wife's business it, it'll it'll ruin it'll ruin her whole night it's it's just amazing how much like the the sleep of children can really govern who you are as a human being as a parent it's a hard thing to explain to people who like don't have kids yet or aren't married yet they they like literally look at you like you're talking about some completely um insane foreign thing like i would i would look at somebody who like 
you know, is talking to me about like only eating, you know, those people that like only eat fruit that like falls from the tree. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't pick it. You can't hurt the tree. You can't disturb the tree's nervous system. You can only eat the fruit <laughs> that falls. Like, like I would just be like, why, like, why is this a thing? But it's the truth. It's the truth. As soon as you have a kid, like your entire destiny as a human being from that point on is governed by how well your kid sleeps. And it's, Oh yeah. It's not anything we can, you, all you can do is try to manage. It's nothing you can control. Yeah. We've, we, we have five kids. Some of them have slept extremely well. Some of them have not. And if you have a kid with eczema, you have a kid with any, any other type of affliction or something that makes them uncomfortable, it, it just breaks your heart as a parent. And like, and unless you are a heartless soul, like you want to solve the problem because you want them to be able to sleep big. And then when they can't sleep, you have to be up. Like there's no way around it. I mean, it it's just, sometimes it's an impossible situation. However, though, I will say, I will not let a kid govern my, my sleep that does not have a problem. Like if you are perfectly fine, we are going like I'm going to take you back to your bed and say, you you, you know what? I love you. I know you want to be in the be in the bed right right now, but maybe we'll do a once a week thing like something. I love you. Hugs, kisses, you know, because I as as a person who's got older kids, too. I miss the fact that they don't get in the bed with you anymore, but then yeah. you can't have them in the bed. It, it's weird. It is yeah. a just a, a a situation that cannot be solved properly because 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 either you never let them in, and then you when when they get older you're like oh I wish they got to get in the bed with me I wish my 13 year old would just hug me, and when they're younger you're like can I get some peace Can I get some time alone with my with my wife? Yeah, this is like, like think about you would never in you would never. In a million years, let anybody put like their barefoot on your head. <laughs> like <laughs> never. You would it'd be like the sign of the ultimate disrespect. And like here I am once or twice a week, like taking a foot to the face and then just getting up and trudging away without saying a word. <laughs> like, like I guess it's time for me to go. I guess you've taken over. Yeah, that's just, it, you know I, I don't want to fight. It's too late. Well, the the dead period is over for the Pac-12 teams, and now the Pac-12 is taking a page out of, you know, the SEC playbook, and now they're offering babies. They're offering kids in middle school. Arizona State just offered an eighth grader. I mean, yeah. I, I don't I – don't, I get hopping on the recruiting bandwagon early, but – I see zero positive for the kid, for the school. I mean, like it, it just looks, I, I just can't find a positive in offering a kid that early. Because I look at it from one aspect. If you offer an eighth grader, obviously he knows he's good. He feels good about his offer. But truthfully, there's nowhere to go. There's not really a whole lot to go up from from there. So yeah. if, if if he gets hurt, he feels like, you know, his life is crumbling down. He's falling apart. You know, um, if 
things go go well and he doesn't get bigger offers and then the the offer is non-binding like there's so or also the kid can say oh yeah yeah i'm scholarshiped already i'm already there and feel entitled doesn't want to work there is minimal upside and a whole lot of downside for the kid, for the family, for the school, for his teammates. I I I, I hate it. It's not great. I mean, they they you know they went through and they offered a bunch of kids who just finished their freshman season too. And this is just kind of how it is. It's it's not new, right? Arizona State made news uh, a few years back by offering an eighth grader who committed. He committed. And uh, how can and everyone you commit when it's not by it's just yeah. lame. Yeah. So it was like the the kid's dad had played for Todd Graham at like um God, wherever Todd wherever it was that Todd Graham played college football. I think it was I don't I I or they had played together. I think maybe they were teammates. And um and so the and so I think the dad's attitude. You know, he is a cop in in Texas and. He was like, wherever, you know, wherever Todd Graham's coaching is where my kid's going to go. And so uh, the kid's name was Lauren Mondy. And it made news, obviously, that like, a you know, a kid who was going into ninth grade was committing uh, to a college. And the, and the whole thing was kind of silly. And there were a lot of comments on Twitter that I've gone back and found um, that basically just kind of said uh, <laughs> that, that basically just kind of said, like, there's no way this never works out. This kid won't commit, you know, and we and we have seen some kids. um commit really early. I think Oregon has a kid that committed really, really early decommitted and has since recommitted and is part of the 2021 class, I believe. Um, so we do see stuff like that sometimes, but that's a long time to be committed to anywhere. Anyway, the kid saw it through. He, he committed like before his ninth grade season played all the way through high school, started getting a lot more offers as a senior and then actually showed up on Arizona state's campus. And then, uh, <laughs> And then Todd Graham gets fired and uh, Herm Edwards comes in and cuts him. <laughs> wow. So like, you know, uh, and the kid's name was Lauren Mondi and he was a, he was a, he was a red shirt freshman middle linebacker and the team came in and didn't think he was going to hack it. And so they said, we'll pay for your school to just, you know, stick around if you want to, uh, or, you know, you can, you can get out of here. You can go play somewhere else. And um, and he chose to stay in school. He chose to take the money, make sure he got his education paid for. First, I think he plans on finishing his degree completely and then seeing if somebody else will give him a chance to play football. But you you just never know. It's such a long time. I definitely wouldn't recommend. I It just sort of feeds into sort of the egotism. But that's also the way the game is played right i mean you got you got a kid who's around that age right now yep yeah he's he's an eighth grader right so if somebody came and they dropped an offer on his head would you say something like what would you do george i would say listen do not offer my kid right now do not because i know my kid don't do it don't do it we are going to fight you can you can rank him on whatever recruiting sites or boards because I can't control that. But don't you come around here trying to recruit. Do not do it. I got no room. I got no energy. I'm not listening to it. Not one single bit. Because here, here, here's the thing that I say. If you offer here, there should be an NCAA rule. If you offer an eighth grader or a ninth grader, like 
because coaches technically can't even talk to those kids in their in their DMs. They can't talk to them, you know, text them and all of that stuff yet. So if coaches can't even text and talk to them at this point in time, like aside from if they see them in person, if they offer them, that offer should be binding. Period. Period. If it's I'm, before, I'm with it, you there. I I don't think that scholarship offers should not be committable. I don't like conditional offers, which is what most of these are, right? Like I am offering you a scholarship in the event that uh, the five guys we have ranked ahead of you don't commit and you academically qualify and you're on track to graduate January or December of your senior year and not May. So there's all these conditions put on this offer. And so, you know, it's like, it's like Best Buy offering you 0% interest, but like, is it no interest? Is it deferred interest? When do you have to have it paid off by it's, these are conditional offers. And, um, you know, what you really want to know is can they commit or not? And if they can't commit to that offer, then is, is it an offer or is it a lottery? Exactly. Did you get you, entered into like, did you take a number at the DMV with an hour left and 30 people ahead of you? Like <laughs> I'm, I'm blessed to announce that I am number three forty six at the Fresno DMV. Um, but there's 30 people in front of you and one hour left in the day. There's no guarantee that they're going to see you and update your license picture or anything like that. So, you know, should you be allowed to take a number if they're not going to get to you? You know, that's, that's what we're talking about here. And I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't like it. The recruiting is kind of my business. Like I work with rivals. I run a high school rivals affiliate. Um, but yeah, I, I, so much of this is so messy and I, I'm just, I'm not a huge fan of it, but it's the way the game's played. It's gross, dude. It, it, it It's gross. And Yes, you want to start recruiting them as early as possible, but there ha- if the coaches can't even text or or DM these kids, they should not be able to offer them. And if they do, it should be binding. Like, period. If you qualify to get in school, it, then you lost a scholarship, even if the kid stinks. So what? You shouldn't have did it. You screwed up. Yeah. I, I hate it. I hate it with the power of a thousand suns. One of the one of the things that I, that doesn't get talked about a whole lot, and I, I don't like to get into this too much because I just want to see people be successful and thrive and flourish. And I've kind of made it my job to point out, like, here's the right way to do things. Follow those already tread paths. Um, but when I see some of these kids get these early offers, and maybe you've seen this too, George, because you've been around football your whole life. I've seen it change kids. Yep. Like, I've seen I've seen a kid become a different kid because they got an offer in ninth grade and it changed the way they were being looked at. Um, I've seen it change a couple of kids for the better in saying, you know, some of them were blessed enough to be able to grasp the mindset that like all an opportunity in life is, is an opportunity to earn more opportunities. That's it. You know, but the large majority of kids with undeveloped brains say like, I'm hot shit now. And 
it affects their relationships with other people. It, it, it undermines their relationship with the authority of their household. Like if you, if you're like a dad and not even like a helicopter dad, but you just see like, I want to make sure my kid's eating right or doing this or staying focused, you know, not trying to live through your kid, but trying to hold them accountable to their own espoused dreams. And, and a coach comes in and says like, you're good and we want you. Like the kid has that in their back pocket of like, I don't have to do what you say. Somebody already affirmed me. I see stuff like that all the time. And that, you know, that stuff, that, that, that's what makes me wonder if like we do have the welfare of the student athletes at heart when we're exposing them to this, you know, people calling 15 year olds for interviews you know, in other time zones, people who sort of maybe have the meat market mindset of recruiting of like just churning out these interviews, not really caring about these kids as people, all of a sudden you're on those people's radar. Like, it's just, I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't, what's the upside? Like, what is the, the so the upside is that like, what? I, to yeah. be able to say that you were first as an institution. Yeah. Yeah. Cause because you hear sometimes kids say, oh, well, they came in late in the game. You know, I like the people who showed love to me early. They yeah. were they were on me early. Like, just because somebody liked you first, that doesn't mean that they're the best play. That doesn't mean that they like you best. <laughs> it doesn't mean that that's where you, that you should go to school. But the, the early matters. Here, early huh? matters. Er, early 100 percent matters. Oh, yeah. Right. It, it definitely, definitely matters, but not everything early is healthy. Like if you're in a dating relationship, like putting everything out there on the table on the first date, like, that yeah, I had idea. Well, I told you about all my issues and all my hangups early. I tried to connect with you early, so I should matter more to you than all your other suitors. Like, no, you got to ease into some of this. You got to build a relationship. So people might look at some of the stuff I'm saying on this is hypocritical because I've often criticized Arizona State and other schools for not tending to the people in their footprint and developing those relationships early. But I don't mean offers, especially non-committable offers that don't necessarily matter. Being there early is about having a relationship with that coach and that parent and actually about caring for the welfare of that kid and making sure that if they're not the best fit for you, that you also have a hand in figuring out wherever they might end up next. You know, oh. it's, it's about being of the community because these colleges might have a state in their name, but they're not beholden to recruiting locally. You don't have to be made up of kids from your immediate local footprint, but you do have to have good relationships. You do have to represent the community well, cause you got that state's name on your Jersey. So yep. like take care of, of those things. And so I just want to make sure that I'm putting out there before I get called a hypocrite by everybody who always say, you always say, get in contact early, stay in contact often. Contact does not mean fake scholarship offer. And I'm not criticizing Arizona state in, in that we eased into this topic by talking about Arizona state. I'm just saying that like, we know for a fact that these offers are not actually offers. We know that, you know, so why, what are we doing? Why oh, yeah. do it? Dude, my kid would lose his mind if Oregon offered him right now. If Arizona State offered him right right now. It, it would be a disaster of epic proportions. I mean, he he already has, has the confidence of, of D Dwayne The Rock Johnson, the way he walks around Earth. 
And to have that in his back pocket, like you were saying, oh, I mean, my, mind you, dad already doesn't know a whole lot. Like, but he's starting to listen a little bit better now. But it's weird. I'm like, you know, your dad was a two sport athlete. College offers in two sports played as a professional. A way above average career. Like, come on, bro. Like, I, I when kids think that. Every other kid that I talk to thinks I know what I'm talking about, except for my own kid. <laughs> so him getting a scholarship offer in eighth grade right now would be a disaster. I need him super humble. I need him to be like, yo, dad, how do I get this? How do I get it? You know, that's what yeah. I need. My I need oldest- him to get it around like soft end of sophomore, junior year, the way you feel good about yourself. You want to work even harder and you want more. Like, and when you've seen the number one kid in the nation, right? right. And when you've seen the other kids who also have offers and you've played against them and you know that some of them are better than you right now. Yeah. When you, when you know, when you know exactly what it is that you're up against, you have no laurels to rest on because it's, it's like, it's like saying, you know, you're 300 meters into a 400 meter race and somebody is telling you as you cross that 300 meters, like you have a chance to win. That's what a scholarship offer is, is like you're already in the race. You've already run three laps and somebody's telling you with one lap left, like you're in this push, you know, that and, and, but that's not really what it's looked at. I mean, I look at my, my son is, my son is 11. He's kind of like one of those like wonderkin academic kids doesn't even play sports. And we went and toured Stanford's campus, uh, when he was 10 years old. And, uh, and, you know, after about four or five hours of walking around the campus and looking at all these different things, he looked at me and he said, like, what do I have to do to get here? And I was like, buddy, everything like this has to become what you're about. If you want this, this is, this is it. Like this will govern your actions from here on out. And I think he got it. I mean, he like in that moment, the kid just starts sobbing, right? Because yep. he knows, like, it, that's the truth. Like, that is that is true. And and I, I think about the fact that, like, that is definitely not the reaction that some of these kids are having when they take their, you know, they get together with their seven-on-seven group and they take these unofficial tours where they drive around to eight or nine different colleges and every college offers every single kid that they see in their hallway. Like, those kids aren't registering the gravity of the situation when they're on that college campus of like, okay, so I want to be either here or in a situation like this. What's it going to take? Because they're not being, they're, they're being catered to. They're being um, like the, the whole thing of being recruited is not letting somebody know that like, this is something that you have to earn. It's telling them like, we believe that in some way, shape or form, you already have earned this or you have the ability to earn this. And this could all be yours, but somehow that this could all be yours gets lost in translation. You know, kids are devastated when they have 20 offers and all of a sudden 19 dry up because other kids committed or they sprained an ankle their senior year. And um, I don't know. I just don't know if, I don't know if we're contributing to healthy mindsets and healthy societies. People want to bitch about the transfer portal, but like the things that contributed to the transfer portal existing and being filled to the brim were happening. Yeah. It was three years before they ever arrived on a campus. 
100% right. Yeah, that is that kids go with they want the big flashy name attached to their name instead of the right thing. You know what I mean? Like you should go to the right school. Yeah. When I remember when I went to Oregon, people were people around me were like, "George, why did you go to Oregon?" Because Oregon, I mean, in 98 uh, uh, and then 99 in February, well, I think February 1st or February 3rd, 99 is when I signed. People, Oregon wasn't what they were. The uniforms changed when I showed up. Like that's when Oregon really first really started to build the momentum that they have created over the last 20, 24 years or 20, what? well, 21 years. And you're just sitting there like, okay. I went there because I believed that that was the best place for me. You know, I would have, I had a lot of other options, a lot of other, you know, scenarios I could have, could have done, but I went where I felt best for me, not just because I could have went to USC, UCLA or wherever. And I'm, and I sit comfortably with my decision now, except for, I, except for the, the fact that my uh, son, the the 13 year old, the eighth grader, I I kept a box in the garage of a, a scholarship offer letter from every school that sent me one. And he was going through the box because I had to pull it down. One day we were in the garage, uh, putting some stuff up in the garage, pulling it, pulling it down. And he was like, dad, what's in the box? I showed him. And, and I had scholarship offers for, well, well, academic, the, the, the way they do it at the, these schools is a little bit different. But um, to Princeton, to Harvard, and he was like, "Dad, you were like like that." I was like, "Yeah, I was a really good student." He was like, "Why didn't you go?" So that's the that's the only thing that I would do differently because I at that point in time I didn't believe that you could get to the NFL from those type types of schools. But boy, was I wrong. Yeah, um, you you would have been out there with like a Ryan Fitzpatrick or something, right out there. Yeah, Ryan Fitzpatrick, that- Marcellus Wiley, uh, some you know. The, those kind of people. Um, but the recruiting dead period is over, though. And teams are trying to put the last minute touches on their classes. Coaches are back on the road. Two classes left. And we will get to those recruiting things over the next couple of weeks as some things really progress. But you have some new coaches that are going to be on the recruiting trail. I mean, is there any other view out there than home run? I've not I've not seen anything but massive praise for this hire. I I've and I I've, I've looked. I don't I don't I, there's not one like credible detractor. This is a 40-year-old who has already established and had some success, beat some Pac-12 teams, um helped establish a culture. He was beloved, you know, for the most part 90% of that fan base wished him well thanked him for elevating the state of the program. Um, He's somebody who really worked his way uh, up, even though he is relatively um, young, you know, he, he's somebody who, uh, but he went in and did the whole win the press conference thing, even though everybody wins their press conference, you know, everybody's catering to optimists who want them to do well, but objectively (laughs) did well, you know, he, he, Dude tweeted the the other night, like, where where are the uh, Washington State fans in Seattle? I'm trying to have some drinks with some people. He went out and partied with uh, with the uh, uh, Cougar 
uh, fan base in Seattle. Like he's already, um, I don't know. I just, I, I think that, you know, this is a dude who played in the NFL. He went to a junior college. He, he, he knows what it's like to be out there in the nitty gritty. He knows all the different corners of football that exist, not all the, the glamorous stuff. Like this is a junior college, all American, right? He was out there playing ju- Juco ball when you were at Oregon. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I think that, um, I don't know. I, I, I think that if you have to replace Mike Leach, because you and I had even sort of painted that situation in Pullman as being sort of held together by Mike Leach himself, um, you're going to have to have somebody who has a force of personality and is also a good coach. Um, and I, I'm not going to say addition by subtraction because we got a lot to prove um, if you're Nick Rolovich, but like he, this is a guy who is good at his job, who is personable, um, who, who isn't going to take Pullman for granted. Having yep. been at Hawaii, having been at the Juco level, having played in the AFL, like th- this is, this is almost too perfect. I love it. It's not an upgrade. Like there is no proof that that could even be the case. I think that'd be a huge hot take, but like you and I have talked a bunch about like, imagine if Mike Leach would just shut up, like just shut up, man, like do your job, take some accountability, shut up and don't allow people to attack you for dumb non-football related stuff, you know? And I almost feel like that's what they stumbled into here. Yeah, exactly. You can't say it's an upgrade. However, Rolovich has had success against Pac-12 teams at Hawaii. He's getting an upgrade in talent going to Washington State, which he is going to bring a different offense than even Mike Leach ran. And when you look, that's going to be difficult for Pac-12 teams to stop. He's going to have a better quarterback, going to have better, better wide receivers, better offensive line, better defensive line, but he's also playing against better competition every week as well. So this is a big, huge step for his coaching career as well. And the way he is, obviously the media is going to have to make a big adjustment. But but those people who enjoy, you know, the quirkiness and all this of, of Mike Leach, they're going to have to get a used to kind of a straightforward kind of kind of guy, kind of all American apple pie guy. But but the Hawaiian version of that, though, because he spent so much time out there, he played there as well. And but at the same time, you get a guy who is, you know, not going to be blaming everybody else for any failure and then getting upset when they point it out. So, you know, so I, I I hope he does well. I hope he, you know, like a rising tide lifts all boats, that he helps elevate the level of Pac-12 play, particularly in non-conference play. But he's he's up against it in the North. Like, j- just to be perfectly frank, you got Oregon, Washington at the, 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 the top tier teams in the North. Cal would be the next team up as of right now. Stanford's got question marks. Oregon State is better. And you got Washington State. I mean, what does success really look like when the top of your conference is so good at this point in time? 
Probably maintenance. I mean, this isn't the first time that Nick Rolovich has replaced a legend. He came in for Timmy Chang when he, you know, he came in and started at Hawaii, uh, replaced Timmy Chang, and they went eight and one. He threw for 3,300 yards, 34 touchdowns. It wasn't Timmy Chang. You know, it wasn't the record-breaking stuff, but he he stepped in and people were able to not, like, miss Timmy Chang. You know, he threw eight touchdowns in a game against BYU. You know, like it, it, it's for for Washington State, it's about being relevant. That's a win for them. It's going to be very, very, very hard for them to compete on a national level, which Mike Leach really got them to do last year. You know, the end results are the end results, and they didn't end up playing in the college football playoff or for a national championship or anything like that. And you can make an argument that maybe they would have had Pac-12 refs not been completely inept. But, you know, to be in that conversation every few years and just to be in any conversation at all, that is a win for Washington State. And if he can keep them there in that conversation without the distractions of like, hey, why is this guy tweeting about California's homeless problem when 40% of the team is from California? If he can keep them in the conversation and limit those distractions, then I think that ultimately this could be a really, really good thing for Washington State. And for all the media members who are bummed that Mike Leach has moved on because the game of football takes itself too seriously and they just want to be entertained from time to time, like those are selfish motivations from people who should just enjoy the fact that we live a blessed life and do a blessed job in the first place. You don't need somebody telling, you know, knock knock jokes up there on the podium to be able to, to do your job. Like I, I just, yeah. I always thought that the affinity for Mike Leach based on him, keeping things fresh and interesting and, and putting nonsense out there was just the sign of an entire industry that had gotten cynical to the point of, you know, being sick of canned answers and, and being sick of, you know, just the, the monotony of this job. When the truth is the monotony of this job is 10 times better than the monotony of any other job on the planet. Like go get your hands dirty. Go, you know, if you, if you want variety, you know, find a different toilet to fix every single day. Like this, (laughs) I, I don't, I just, I, I don't know. I just always thought that like Mike Leach being beloved, by people within sports media because he got you a few extra clicks because he said something interesting like that, that that's outside of the integrity of what the game is all about and what happens on the field. And I think that Nick Rolovich, if he, if he can help Washington state maintain their current relevance while also staying away from some of those, you know, um, weird landmines that Mike Leach used to step in yet people would give him a free pass for then, you know, uh, this is again, can't, I literally cannot use the word upgrade, but it has the potential. If he can maintain football relevance and take away those distractions, it has the opportunity to get there. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, another hire, you had Joe Moorhead, former Mississippi state head coach who Mike, (laughs) who Mike Leach replaced goes to Oregon to be the offensive coordinator. There were a bunch of <laughs> other people up for this job, including Hill, the obfuscated core coordinator Hill, a guy from um, an analyst from LSU. Yeah, Jed Fish, who was not very happy <laughs> about how the how it all played out. But 
Joe Moorhead is the is the head coach. He led, you know, Penn State when they had such an offensive explosion. But you had Saquon Barkley. And Mississippi State's offense was not good. I mean, like people looked at him with uh you know how you talk about winning the press conference? All the Oregon people were saying, oh my God, it's a home run hire. This is amazing. This is great. And I'm sitting like, where has this dude, like, where does offensive genius just, just jump off the page to? Like, I get the Penn State thing, but how much can I put stock in that? You had Saquon Barkley. And you and you had a decent quarterback, too. Um, and you had uh, a, a, a tight end that was really good. All, all of them were in the NFL. Like, and, and a wide, wide receiver as well. Like, how great are you as an offensive coordinator? Like, I am not sold. I I am reserving judgment until we see the results on the field. But at the same time, it can't be. I don't think that it will be worse than what we saw from Marcus Arroyo, who was not terrible because Oregon averaged a lot of points. But they got stalled, had inconsistent times, all of that. And hopefully for the Ducks that Joe Moorhead is a guy who can iron it out, even it out, keep the team more consistent while it, while um, like even though Oregon, I think they averaged 37 or 38 points. They were one of the bottom teams in third down conversion, fourth down conversion. Like you have to the more possessions that you get, the more points you're going to score, the more you dominate the game. It, it's just a fact. So what's your take yeah. on the hire? Uh, I think patience pays. I think that they were patient, and I think it worked out for them. My biggest concern with Joe Moorhead is not, you know, his entire life has sort of been spent in the Northeast, and, you know, I don't think that the Southeast took to him very well. You know, they weren't sad to see him go. Uh, He won two Egg Bowls, right? So he'll always have that. But this is a guy that is from the Northeast, has done most of his coaching in the Northeast. But he has too much success in his background for me to look at two mediocre years at what is essentially a mediocre school within the context of the SEC. uh, For me to say that those two years should define who he is. Joe Moorhead came to Fordham in 2012 after Tom Massala led them to a one in 10 season. Okay. He, he put them at six and five immediately, immediately. Um, and then the next year, 12 and two, the next year, 11 and three, and the next year, nine and three. Okay. A one in 10 team. He took over a one in 10 team for four years and never once had a losing record. You know what they've done after he left? What? They had one good season at eight and three, and then immediately fell to four and seven, two and nine, and then this last year they went four and eight. Okay. Yeah. So he was he he was enormously instrumental in that. He he used that to get on as the offensive coordinator at Penn State, where he had uh, quite a bit of success. And yes, he had an incredible amount of talent and very special players available to him in the process. But is he not going to have that at Oregon? 
right? I mean, like, and so he's going to be in a situation where he either has the best or second best uh, offensive recruits, depending on, you know, what you're looking at um, to deal with. And, you know, what this is really going to come down to, obviously, is whether or not some of these guys that haven't really played all that much can step up, you know, but he's got an established running back at his disposal now with back-to-back 1,000-plus yard seasons. Um, And I think that that if Oregon is smart, if they're smart, they'll realize that a lot of Mario Cristobal's strength is in his ability to recruit, and they'll allow Joe Moorhead to take this opportunity to sort of redeem himself and redeem his name without burdening him with really going out there and looking for the people that are going to fit best in his offense, because he's just a stopgap. He's a temporary solution. He's not going to be at Oregon for four or five years. We know this. Yeah. If, 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 if if he's successful, he'll be there for two. If he's unsuccessful, he'll be there for two. Yeah. So (laughs) that's kind of the way it's going to work. So I don't think you should even burden him with recruiting. You should say, like, this is what he accomplished at XYZ. You should introduce him when recruits come to Eugene and say, like, this is the great Joe Moorhead who run these ran these fantastic offenses who lifted Fordham up from the garbage can, you know, to where they now continue to reside. Um, it, it, you, you know, he's not going to be here long because we really got to steal with him. You should get in while the getting's good and come play for this man while we still have him. And Mario Cristobal continues to carry that burden of being the lead recruiter, something he's already so good at. And just take advantage of the fact that, you know, you can sort of hand this off and trust him and that he's not going to be there long. And so um, I think that if they take that approach, that this has the opportunity to just be a huge home run of a hire. And what I'm really interested in is everything really comes down to how well Tyler Shuck takes to things. Um right out of the gate. You know, he's somebody who has the talent. He has the work ethic. Will he have the right offense? Will this be, um, will this be okay for him? Uh, and that, that's the big question right now is because he, if, I mean, if, if Tyler Shuck comes out and he has a monster year next year, um, does he stick around? You know, it's, he's already in that weird situation where he sat for three years, right? Yep. He sat for two years. Yeah. So next year's his third. So, and he also went early. So he's been at Oregon for a really long time. Um, you know, you want to sell this idea of like, man, we're going to try to go out in there and try to be so good this year that all that time we spent waiting for Tyler Shuck was only for the one year that he was going to be here. You want to one and done that kid, right? You really want to go for everybody's throat. And so um, this has a potentially to be a really big thing. I think it's a platform by which Joe Moorhead maybe finds his way back to the Northeast. Um but yeah, I, I think that you you waited, you got one of the best available offensive minds, and as long as all he has to concentrate is on the offense, then I think it could be really good. Okay, okay you 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 have you have tilted my meter from wait and see to okay. I I'm I'm optimistic now, slight cautiously optimistic. That's where I'm gonna go. Um, did we are are there any more hires, notable hires that we need to mention? Uh, well, I here here's one that kind of goes outside the Pac-12 that I did think was uh was interesting. Is did you see that Nebraska, uh, who is coming off what like 
several losing seasons in a row now, and Scott Frost is probably in the process of coaching for his job. That uh, you know, I I cover Arizona State, you cover Oregon, so we got some overlap here. Did you see that Nebraska made an offensive coordinator hire? Yes, yes, that was very surprise. Like when I remember when I saw that, so they hired. Um, wait, Matt wait, Lubick. No, no, no. Troy, Troy, Troy Walters was the right. Yeah, yeah. So he was. They elevated Walters, right, and then replaced him. Yes. Is that how they did this? Yes, and now it's Matt Matt Lubick, who's replacing him. Correct. Yeah, and he coached at ASU. He coached yep. at Oregon. Yep. He had an incredible amount of success, and then he just sort of he left coaching, right? Like that was, uh, he took a couple of years off. And, um, I, I think that that's an interesting ad for them. Cause I, I feel like Nebraska is really the PAC 12's 13th team just because it competes for the same recruits. Uh, you know, they, they, they tried to establish that presence in California and had some success. The coaches sort of bounce around from those same, schools they schedule some pac 12 schools every once in a great while um so i I thought that that was interesting and 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 anytime nebraska does anything positive uh i always keep an eye on it because what that always means to me is those are players that are going to leave the pac 12 footprint more often than i mean nebraska is filled with kids from california arizona colorado like washington like they get these kids to not commit to pac-12 schools so they can go out and have a five and seven season in lincoln but the stadium sold out so that's nice yeah <laughs> right uh um uh, dude i i don't know how great of an offensive you know like how great of an um addition that this is going to be I mean, yes, he's been a part of successful coaching staffs when he was at Oregon as an assistant with with Frost from 13 to, to, to 16. But he was also Washington's co-offensive coordinator from 17 to 18. But neither one of those had super successful offenses. And well, well, sorry, the, the, the Washington didn't. So I, I, I don't know, man. I think that as a coach, if you are not going to be a coordinator yourself, I think the most, the biggest thing that you can do, it the well, the most important thing that you can do besides recruiting, is to hire good coaches, because you can't do everything all by yourself, and you have to be able to let people do their job. So hiring quality people is a very, very important skill. And now we're also going to see a bunch of other Pac-12 coaches potentially leaving the conference now, because when that February first, February first is a, an important date, because that's when you see people's contracts becoming up. So you have coaches whose contracts are expiring, expiring, but their fr- they work for their friends, and their friends don't want to fire them. And or they are looking for other NFL jobs that are coming open because coaches right. are building their staffs at this point in point in time. So you may actually have Cal lose somebody on the defensive side. You can have Oregon maybe lose someone to UNLV. You may have, um, as we saw, USC was able to 
maintain Graham Graham Harrell. Like, there's a bunch of stuff that that you, well, you, I mean, you USC know, just out. hired. USC just hired Todd Orlando to coach their defense two weeks after he was hired by Texas Tech. Yep. So USC's, you know, and who who is fired by Texas, by the way. Yes. Todd Orlando yes. got, but he he's kind of known as a quick fix guy, and they need a quick fix. Like they need somebody to come in, take the personnel that they have right now, and try to maximize their potential. Um. What do you think of this Todd Orlando thing? Because I, I like it. I actually like it. I think this was USC's best option because they had whiffed on a bunch of defensive coordinators. Whiffed on a bunch. They've offered a bunch of guys. But the problem is getting to getting a. So if you want a big time defensive coordinator. That means he's already having success. That means he's not fired. You know what right. I mean? Like, like you, like, like you weren't going to get Baylor's head coach to leave LSU. Um. Uh. Uh. What? What's his name? Asad. Um. You weren't going to get him to leave LSU to go to USC. Like that's just arrogant and ridiculous. Oh, Aranda. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Aranda. Yeah, you you weren't going to get him to leave LSU to come to USC. That's just ridiculous. You but, say it's you say it's ridiculous, but I, I'm, there is a faction of USC fans out there that would say like, why not? They like, just that, won a national championship. You're going to leave Ed O'Gron, who's a man who, even if you don't get along with him perfectly, he leaves you alone. You have a right. you you have a a stockpile of talent. You just won the national championship. You're making $1.8 million at LSU to leave to go play for a lame duck coach in LA. That- right, but they, they need to hear that out loud because in the, in the, the there is this there's this thing that's just not dying in a lot of U, USC's fan base of like of of believing that the only reason, the only reason that somebody would turn down the opportunity to be a Trojan is Clay Helton. That it's actually, that that it's not an institutional issue, that it's not multifactorial, but that Clay Helton actually stands between USC and greatness, which they are destined for, which is owed to them because of who they are in their history. Does that make sense? Like there are enough people out there that think that the answer is simply, Oh, because Clay Helton's there and actually like he is bad. And therefore nobody would want to be associated with bad Clay Helton. Even if it is USC that someone would only turn down the opportunity to come to USC because in their mind, they would only be coming to the great institution of the University of Southern California for one year when in truth, deep in their heart of hearts, they want to be there for as long as possible. So so why would, and this applies to anyone, Dave Aranda, anyone else, why would they turn down the opportunity to be there now? Well, it's only because they're playing the long game. 
because everybody wants to be part of USC and their culture for the long term. And they know that they can't have that if Clay Helton's the one in charge and that ultimately he is going to get fired and that everyone in the world knows it except for the people in charge at USC who were <laughs> in on this conspiracy. You know what's crazy? I'm, tr- I'm trying to paint this in a way that sounds crazy, but it's not. It's very close to the mainstream of what is believed right now. Is there is a very small, select group of people holding USC back from greatness, and they're doing it purposefully. And I don't, I don't know that that's intellectually honest. I think there are a lot of other schools that are also just good and other good opportunities out there. And it's not a matter of USC is the absolute best and the absolute pinnacle of college football and everyone else is subservient to them or would be, if not for this evil man, oh, um, dude, it, it, which is it why is. I like the Todd or I, I like, I like Todd Orlando. Yeah. I like, it, I like pairing two dead men walking together. Yeah. And having them go out there and because Graham Harrell's safe, like he's in demand. They're going to want to keep him at any cost. He signed a multi-year deal. And even if they fail, he knows he's going to be safe because he gets interviews everywhere all the time. But Todd Orlando and Clay Helton, like back against the wall, it's it's put up or shut up time. And I I love that idea. I love the idea of like, we're either going to screw this up completely together or we're going to go out there and we're going to redeem our name. It makes it so much I, more interesting. I agree with you there. Because, I mean, what else did USC expect? I mean, a successful defensive coordinator, unless he's at a very small school, but also if he is a very successful coordinator, he might. he's probably going to be like, nah, I'm not going to leave to go to USC because – if this doesn't work out, all this buzz around my my name is going to be gone. I might not. I might be able to skip and go straight to a head coach, you know, without going to go be a defensive coordinator somewhere else. So I'm going to chill because Clay Helton is is the perception out in the world. No matter what Mike Bone says, no matter what uh, Carol Folt, the president says, it feels like to recruits. It feels like to Everybody in the media, everybody to talk to that Clay Helton is living on borrowed time in terms of being USC's head coach. So if you are a coach in demand, you're not going to leave that if for a for a precarious situation where you can be out of a job very quickly. So that's why you had so many people turn it down. And Todd Orlando has had a history of success. Did not do well at Texas. So then he gets hired at Texas Tech. Then gets a better opportunity at USC. So he's that lets you know what his thinking is. He's like, oh, I got an opportunity to get back to a head coach quicker. So if this works out, because I think I can with these talented players here, I'm going to bet on myself. So I like the move for Todd Orlando. I like it for what you said, pairing him with Clay Helton and how two dead men walking can actually, you know, back against the wall come out kicking and screaming and fighting and might be able to do something. I like it for all those reasons. So I am in on that with you. Can um, I ask you about, can I ask you about one more hire? Yep. This is the puzzling one that since the last time that you and I got together to talk some Pac-12 football, um, Brian Norwood, UCLA defensive backs, assistant head coach and passing game coordinator. Bruh. What in the hell? For, first, 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 
I love it. I absolutely love it. It's new. It's different. It's interesting. It gets a Stop, it gets a Stop. coach. Hold on, hold on. It it we we've been talking about this in the national media for a while now. But uh, Brian Norwood has been coaching since he was like 24 years old. He's got 30 years of skin in the game all over the country. He has ascended to as high as defensive coordinator and assistant head coach of two different institutions. Okay. He has never had a head coaching job ever. And one of the things we talked about with minority head coaches not getting opportunities is them not being in the room on the offensive side of the ball. This is somebody who coached defense for 30 years. He knows all about the passing game from the mirror image side of it, right? So here's somebody who's getting an opportunity, who's been in the game for 30 years, who leaves Navy where he's the co-defensive coordinator where he was the co-defensive coordinator at Kansas State the year before that. He comes to UCLA and he has multiple responsibilities as he has had. He's had multiple responsibilities since 2011. So he's had this for a decade, but now it's on both sides of the ball. And on its face, it looks goddamn ridiculous. I will give you that. But have we not read, been talking about Read this? those jobs again, Ralph. Please, please <laughs> read them again. Defense, <laughs> defensive backs, assistant uh-huh. head coach, passing game coordinator. You're coaching the offense and the defense at the same time. That is inherently the problem with this, Ralph. What is the can, so is the idea cuz obviously it's going to affect the way they run individual meetings is the idea to have the receivers and the DBs together. And is there harm in that? No, yes. Yes, you're watching two different films. Like when you're watching the offense, you're watching the ones and the twos basically go against scout team. And like, yes, in the spring when you're going bet good, good versus good, all of that stuff, then and you're not scheming for somebody else, then yes, it's fine. But when you get into the regular season, how is he supposed to sit in the offensive meeting and like with the offensive team, team offensive meeting and the defensive backs meeting at the same time? He's only one person. He's only got one ass. He can only sit in one place at one time. This is the most, when I read it, the first thing I thought is, oh, they must have messed up. This must be a misprint. That is the first thing I thought, because I've never seen anything as outrageous as that. And I still am not 100% convinced that that's right. I need to look at US UCLA's official school site to make me believe that this is true. (laughs) Oh, I... I don't know how to explain it. Here's what I will say. You're not going to get more football knowledge, more more experience, more wealth of experience from anybody other than Brian Norwood. So maybe it's just a matter of making him available. Maybe essentially he's sort of serving in the role of uh, that, like Marvin Lewis serves sort of as an advisor where you've sort of got your fingers and everything, but they're going to allow him to recruit and they're going to allow him to coach the players directly, right? So, you know, I don't know. I, it's it's hard to explain, but you're talking about a guy who 
has worked on multiple occasions with his best friends with Ken Nia Matalolo. Like he, he, he worked for Joe Paterno for as awful as a human being, as you think that art Bryles is, he's a great football mind. Like he's studying under art Bryles. I believe Bill Snyder was still at Kansas state back in 2018, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. he has been around Bill Snyder and Joe Paterno and art Bryles. And now chip Kelly, this is a guy who has been, uh, coach in Texas. He's been a coach in the Midwest. He's been a coach on the East Coast. Now he's bringing that to the West Coast. I, I, I just, I think that it's an incredible person to get in the room uh, with yeah. your with your football team. In which room, though? <laughs> right. Exactly. I so I, I thought it was a I thought it was a um, typo when I first saw it on Twitter. And then you see like the official school graphic and you're like, wow, they're really, they're really doing it. (laughs) Like, what the hell is this? And, uh, and now I'm, I, I maybe crazy like a Fox. Maybe it, I don't know. Maybe it pays off because essentially it's a matter of really, of really multitasking that if you can, if you can explain offense and defense in chess, to someone at the same time, you know, why can't you have the receivers and the DBs in the same room to say like, this is what's going on. It helps for you to have an understanding of both sides of the ball in order to do your job more completely. But uh, then again, I've never seen it done before, so I don't know. And maybe it's going to be a matter of like in a year, his title is adjusted and it's all a matter of like, Oh, well that, that was pretty obvious or who knows? Maybe it literally is just a matter of seeing how many titles they could fit under one name to get him a salary. That would be enough to get him to come out uh, and leave Navy in order to, you know, be, be in LA. Maybe that, Maybe that's it because it, on its face, it does look completely absurd. But if anybody can do it, it's going to be somebody who has been in college football um, for 30 years and has been in every possible system. He again, he also I didn't left out Mike Leach. This dude has also worked for Mike Leach. So dude, he's uh, been around. Yeah. So the um, I mean, I'm still surprised that Jerry as as an RO still has a job, but that's his <laughs> defensive coordinator. But that you know, uh, who who can make who can make make sense of that? The if that's not a misprint about uh, his job, then then who knows? Then it makes sense why Jerry as an RO still there. Um, but the Pac-12 schedule came out, Ralph, and the schedule is, you know, it's. Better set up than last year, I would say, because I always am critical of the conference for setting up their schedule for parity instead of for for optimal play and for the most televised games and for, you know, and for scheduling for success, especially for the teams that you expect to be good for the next year. So if you're coming into 2020, which, what three or four Pac-12 teams would you say should be, like if you were putting together a nationally televised schedule, like they do in the NBA and all these other teams, or in uh, other leagues, which teams would you put on national TV the most as of right now, Ralph? For just how the schedule no, 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 laid no, no, out? No, no. Or I, just I'm for... saying like the teams, that the, the, the three or four teams – that you expect to be the best um, and 
uh, in the Pac-12 next year and have a potential chance at the college football playoff and and all of that. Like the like the same way that if you were looking at the SEC, you would say, okay, Alabama is always good, so they're always good to spotlight. Yeah. Um, Georgia got the the uh, transfer kid from from uh, Wake Forest. They uh, Jamie Newman and th- they look like they're going to be in a good spot. Florida brings Trask back. You know, like I am. Uh, Auburn lost a bunch of guys, so I'm not 100 percent sure. Not sure about Bo Nix. May not spotlight them. Yeah, Texas, Texas A&M schedules kind of light. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to figure out the teams that are going to be highlighted. Yeah. What Pac-12 teams would you highlight right right now that are expected that you expect to either win the conference or compete for a college football playoff spot? Well, I mean, uh, Oregon is must watch TV. Um, established running back, star, offensive lineman. You always have the curiosity that comes along with a new quarterback, and then you bring in the two best freshman linebackers um, in the entire country and you put them on the same defense to push uh, some of the guys, including the four who could have gone pro, who just announced that they were coming back. So um, Oregon right now is that that's who you sort of, if you only had one game you could watch in a day and you were just a run of the mill Pac-12 fan or your team that you were a fan of was on a buy. That's the one that you're going to want to stop and watch. The other one is the one that is in the biggest market and has the built-in superstar in the offense that highlights his strengths, and that's Keaton Slovis in USC. So, and I, I would say you're you're looking for three or four teams, but I'd put those two far and away above sort of what anybody else has um, going on right now. Uh, for as good as Cal could be. Um, there's still sort of like the Utah jazz of, you're talking about like, you know, how often does, yep. uh, does NBA on TNT go hang out in salt Lake, even though the jazz are winning 50 every single year, you know, because the style of basketball and the level of superstar doesn't always match what it is that you're trying to want to see. But I feel like if you're just talking about overall skill and good football, that Cal maybe potentially belongs in that conversation. There's too much unknown about, Washington and maybe that's what makes them appealing and also the Jimmy Lake era that would make people want to possibly um possibly get a look at them and then maybe sort of in fifth place um is this you know the cult of personality of Herm Edwards as well as the um potential and I think uh he sort of maybe uh, I've, I've noticed becoming a little bit of a divisive figure which is when you know you've really made it in uh in Jaden Daniels and so um you know those are some of the teams but right now it's it's Oregon and USC like those are the ones that are going to be most watchable because uh you know for for either reason obviously if you if if USC fails it's a story if they succeed it's a story yeah um and then if you're watching just for talent on its face you want to see individual performances that's going to be uh Oregon is really going to be what kind of wets the beak there so with with that being said the the schedule for USC who's one of the the the, the marquee teams return a lot of players great quarterback all of these things they have the toughest September and they have the toughest November. Yeah. Like they they play three they play Alabama, Stanford, and Arizona State all in September. And then in November, they play at Oregon and UCLA 
and then play Notre Dame and Washington in the same month. Yeah. Like that's that's brutal. That is absolutely brutal. And I'm sitting there like, okie dokie. So we're supposed to um we're supposed to think that you're supposed to make make it out alive from right. that? Yeah. Dude. Well and, that's and, and, you know, and also you actually schedule um you actually schedule uh USC also after that September they come back and follow that up at Utah on a Friday night on a Friday night like I hate these short week games I think it's not good for the conference and then in um and then in November, one of your marquee teams that we talked about, Oregon plays USC. Your one of your marquee games of the whole entire season. No Saturday, November seventh, and it's on the same weekend as Stanford at Washington. Like, why are you putting the the SEC would never put these games on the like it would never put Georgia Florida on the same weekend or or uh. Georgia LSU on the same weekend as Alabama Texas A&M. They just would not do it. Um and then you follow that your marquee game up with which is going to be a tough game, probably physical game, a lot of emotions. Then you make Oregon go uh and play on a Friday night following that. Like it, it's just craziness to me, Ralph. I I I think the conference tries to make it a difficult run that's why nobody has finished undefeated in the conference because they make it way too difficult and if you have an injury at the wrong time or you know some random thing happened you can lose football games which which ultimately ends up hurting the conference uh yeah i mean i i i i think we, you and I have outlined our feelings about the Pac-12 scheduling, the nine conference games, the Thursdays, the Fridays, the turnarounds, the way they schedule together. For every and uh, every and all complaint that we've ever had, and every gripe that we've ever espoused about the way the Pac-12 puts the schedule together, I feel like this is probably the most vanilla. Like it, it I would all, agree it with dis- that. It displays all of the problems that we've talked about, but there's not that like one insanely egregious thing to put them over the top. Like we've seen in years past, like, Oh, like uni- last year, university of Arizona's 13 game schedule without a buy. <laughs> like, you know, uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Like, or, or, or last year, you know, there are some very obvious issues at USC uh, in, in particular, had they won mm-hmm. the South, they would have had a bye week before the PAC 12 championship playing Oregon on a short week. What? What do you think of, uh, what do you, <laughs> we still got the PAC 12 championship on a Friday, on a Friday night. Cracks yep. me up. I hate that. Uh, but what do you think of, <laughs> what do you think of, uh, Notre Dame at USC Saturday, November 28th? Do you think, uh, you think either team is going to be walking into that full, I mean, I, I, I'm looking at two teams that are probably going to be pretty beat up. The 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 only thing I like about that is this is that Notre Dame 
should be a good team. They were returning Ian Book. They got a safety uh, number 14 from last year. It was really good. They have a bunch of good playmakers. Uh, they're going to be a top 15 team. Yeah. So if USC does well, that's one of those rivalry games. It's going to be the most watched game of the weekend. Probably if USC is doing well, that's a game that can propel the PAC 12 up. You know what I mean? For yeah. the PAC 12 championship, especially if they win the South, like that, that's a game that can boost the overall conference or hurt the conference as well. Like it's got booster. It's got feast or famine potential. Yeah, the one like let's say that UCLA is competitive this year. The one thing that I see for them that that kind of stands out to me is they play the rivalry game on Saturday at UCLA, and then UCLA hits a short week over Thanksgiving to go to Cal. Mm. That. That one seems a bit much to me. At least Washington, who also has a short week and plays on that Friday, November 27th, at least Washington is just driving from Seattle to Pullman, like, you know, taking a bus or whatever. Yeah. They have, yeah, the, they have that home game. And that, yeah. And so, um, but yeah, no, maybe it'll, maybe it'll make, uh, you know, there's oftentimes the home team. Uh, the day after Thanksgiving is the one that actually struggles because you're surrounded by distraction. But the still of the it being a short week is pretty wild. They have a full slate, no buys at all for that Saturday, November 21st. And then you move into the two Friday games. Yeah. Um, and the ri- yeah. rivalry game two two out of conference. Um, Arizona State at Oregon on a Friday. Don't love that. Going to try to make it. Mm. But Fridays are for high school football for me. They always yep. have been. And so unless I can find, you know, unless there's a Thursday game scheduled or something like that that week, then that might not necessarily work out in my favor. I hate Friday games regardless. Um, but it looks like there aren't too many teams that get stuck with the multiple weekday games. Um, UCLA is one of them. They host Utah on a Thursday, then obviously play the Friday after Thanksgiving. So that's not. That's not super optimal for them. Um, But other than that, most of these teams have the one Friday game and that's it. And then if they do play a Thursday, it's against a much lesser opponent. Unless you're talking about Oregon State at Oklahoma State or BYU at Utah. You know, those are pretty major games. And so um, I don't know. But as, as far as like some of the crazy issues we've seen, I look at it this year and I'm like, you know what? I can stomach this. Friday is still stupid as hell. It will never not be stupid as hell. It will never not be a detriment to your ability to recruit. Um, and it will never not be a sign of the Pac-12 admitting that it can't get people to watch their games on the Saturdays, you know, that they have to bend to. It's what opens them up to the idea of playing at 9 a.m. and all those things. Um, but other than that, I mean, it's it, it, it's an interesting schedule filled with good matchups of a lot of teams that have switched coaches or have new quarterbacks coming in. And I think that it's going to be um, I think it's going to be really interesting. The one uh, date that I have circled on my calendar is Saturday, September 19th, because I just think that that there are so many really good out of conference matchups for that day. Arizona gets to go to Texas tech to try to get their revenge. Um, Texas tech just demoted Keith Patterson to defensive backs coach so that they could bring on a defensive coordinator who spent two weeks there and moved on to USC. 
So it'll be interesting to see if Texas Tech <laughs> re-elevates Keith Patterson or what they do. Dude, that would be he, incredible. Yeah. You get fired and then you cut well, sorry, yeah. demoted. Yeah. And then that guy comes in and leaves. And then they're like, right. hey, yo, see, you know when we demoted you, like, yeah. do you want your job back? And you're uh, like, you, uh, I need a pay raise then, yeah. apparently. BYU at ASU, it's probably the fullest you'll ever see Sun Devil Stadium. You know, now, now well, fullest since, you know, they put 78,000 in there for Super Bowl 30 <laughs> Cowboys Steelers. But like, but, but you know, a, a really, really good amount of either people who attend ASU or people who live in Arizona have those BYU ties. So that's going to be electric. USC at Stanford has become a rivalry. So you're kicking off the Pac-12 slate with that game. I think that's fantastic. San Diego State had Rocky Long walk away, um, but it's still San Diego State, and UCLA is going to be looking to get some revenge. And so I think, and that's at San Diego State. So I think that that game's uh, super interesting. Mel Tucker has gone into Texas and let them know that Texas kids are a priority for Colorado. And now he's going to bring some of those Texas recruits that he landed back into the heart of Texas to play at Texas A&M. That is a fantastic game. Uh, Utah and Wyoming are actually old Mountain West rivals, and I'm from Wyoming. I'm a Wyoming fan. Uh, one of the last times Utah was up there, I think, was um, pretty contentious. And so, you know, and everybody somehow manages to make an enemy of Utah. So I think that that game will be very uh interesting. Um, Hawaii at Oregon has its own intrigue as Hawaii has multiple victories over, over PAC 12 schools and Oregon has made Hawaii a priority as far as recruiting, um, Portland state, Oregon state. So you got the in-state matchup there. Utah state always brings really good athletes to the table. So I think them going to Washington could be good. And then Idaho at Washington state, those schools are what, like 30 miles max. Yeah, when, from when each teams other? go to play at, at, at Pullman at Washington State, a lot of times they stay in Moscow, Idaho. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that to me, that's the coolest. September nineteenth is just a cool day of of college football. I got. I'm gonna find maybe you know that BYU ASU game is gonna be intriguing to go out and cover, but I got to make sure that I'm in a position where I can watch as many of these games as possible. Oh, me, I'm looking at the weekend prior, dude. <laughs> the weekend prior is better for me. I like the uh, September 12th. You got Stanford, Arizona, Arizona State, UCLA. Um, I actually, never never mind. I'm going to stick with yours. I, I was just looking at the, um, oh, wow. The only Are you game- excited? Are you excited to see um, the two weeks before that? Are you excited to see North Dakota State come knocking? Hell or, no, or, man. Okay, okay, yeah. So you and I are on the same page. They're like, what Oregon, the hell was Oregon doing? <laughs> yes, Oregon scheduled the most bizarre uh, non-conference schedule this year. They So they scheduled North Dakota State, which is not to be taken lightly. No. But the good news is, is that beating North Dakota State, I know it sounds weird because they're an FCS school, but they won like seven out of the last eight national championships there and go undefeated damn near every year. They're absolute monsters. Yeah. They really are. Like, they are the boogeymen of the FCS. They just beat Iowa. They have beaten other FBS programs in major conferences. Like, this is not, they are not to be played with. They are better than, like, re- remember when Appalachian State beat Michigan? Everybody was like, oh, my God, like the, the world was going to end. Like, uh, people wouldn't, like, North Dakota State fans believe they can walk into Autzen Stadium and win. 
Like that's yeah. how that's how their confidence is, and that's how their success has been. So Oregon schedule North Dakota State, which ironically will get them ready for their next game against Ohio State, and yeah. then they schedule Hawaii after that. So so you got three different styles of teams that you got to get ready for the first three weeks of the season. Yes, you have more more talent, but it is yeah. it is in the Ducks' best interest that they have their uh, their juniors returning because so they may have one yeah. of the best uh de- defensive rosters in the entire n- nation this year they got L- lenore the corner returning um graham's back graham's back jordan scott and follow and then, then they also have the kid M- michael wright who might actually should be starting over yeah. <laughs> over lenore which is crazy well, I mean, I just, I love it. I love the no days off approach. I mean, because c- there's even, if you lose, there's no loss that you can't be proud of for having even scheduled them in the first place. You know, nobody likes to lose or whatever, but nobody's going to look at a loss to any team on your schedule and say that precludes you from competing um, at the highest level. So I, I uh, love... You can't lose to uh, North Dakota State or Hawaii and think that you want to make... You can't lose to Hawaii. You're right. You can't, you can't, you can't lose to Hawaii. I got, I got you there. Um, but it is definitely a no days off approach. I'm, I'm appreciative of that. Uh, so I'll ask you this question. Who has a better chance to win on Saturday, September 5th, North Dakota state or USC? Yeah. Who has a better chance to win on September 5th, North Dakota state who is visiting Oregon or USC who is hosting Alabama? Who would you give better odds to? Oh God. Um Lord, they they should be about the same. I mean, so so Oregon has way more talent than North Dakota State. They have m- way more NFL talent. So provided they don't turn the ball over and Tyler Shug at quarterback is is adequate, they should be okay. Like like I feel, but USC at least has a fighting chance with Keaton Slovis and the fact that Alabama doesn't know who their quarterback is going to be yet. Right. So I give USC a better chance, but, but I don't give either one a very good chance. Gosh, man, if it ends up being former USC commit Bryce young playing against USC at the Coliseum, how wild would that be? Especially if he wins. No, that game is at, uh, in the, um, in Dallas, oh, is it? It's neutral. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm reading yeah. this wrong. That's Man, my bad. You, you well, know, then, Alabama yeah, the... doesn't schedule home and homes until, <laughs> until they were just forced to recently. Yeah. Dude, the Alabama hasn't had hasn't played a home and home non conference game in in years, dude. I mean, right. it's been almost since Nick Saban was there. Like they don't do that. Yeah, and they don't any... even. They don't even have one scheduled until um let me look. It it's it's sometime not soon. And we haven't even I mean we haven't even talked about the we haven't even talked about Michigan at Washington. That's that, a huge program. that's a huge game for, for it's a huge uh, game for Michigan. Yes. Yes. And I, I mean I can't it, I cannot stress how important that game is for Michigan. Because I feel like you finally entered into a year that is make or break for Jim Harbaugh. Because he has 
he has done just enough, just enough to not be on a red hot seat. Yeah. Yeah, but you win nine or ten games every year. It's hard to get a, a guy on a on a on a hot seat when the only games that you lose when you beat teams like Penn State this year, and then you get boat raced yeah. by Ohio State. But so did everybody else. It's hard to be upset. It's weird. Uh, well, tell that tell that to Michigan fans. If they lose at Washington, then it makes the Ohio State game like literally a must win. Yeah, I think for him. But that's that, what that's Jim just Harbaugh opinion. would do, though, right? Yeah. Isn't, isn't that well no 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 he he would lose to Washington and Ohio State but then he would beat Wisconsin Penn State Iowa right. every other team that they ran across <laughs> he just uh, creates the conundrum for the fan base yeah and they would be like oh they'd be like we can't fire him but he's 10 and 2 yeah. ah, they would go nuts dude and just a kid just a kid who constantly brings home B pluses yeah, and then oh, and then Ohio State drops a game to to Oregon or something, or 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 just a bad loss like they have sometimes, like that Iowa or that Purdue loss a couple years ago, and then Michigan State fans win win the conference, but they're so upset because they're like, we can't beat Ohio State. Yeah, I the out of conference the out of conference to me uh, this year is set up in such a way that like I. I full on will make the back to pack argument. Like if if you really really want this to be an intriguing Pac twelve slate, uh, you know, come late September, you need some marquee wins. And and I th- I think that you know there are people who are vehemently against that, and I I get where they're coming from. But this year, it's it's time to make sure that your in conference wins mean something by getting some marquee wins. You know, whether it's Cal over TCU or Washington over Michigan or USC doing the improbable, you know, or or Oregon over um, Ohio State. Like you you need some of those, not all, but you you need to make sure that the, the conference brings within itself some of those wins. Yeah. Except uh, for when Utah plays Wyoming, then I'm um that's off the table for me. Dude, dude, I, I, I was thinking about you the other day when Wyoming lost the they lost one of their coaches to uh, somebody else, and I was like, Oh, Ralph Ralph's gonna be really sad. <laughs> well, it's it it I just I you know, there's only so much time that you can spend in Laramie. There's a reason I don't live there. <laughs> so like as long as somebody came in there and gave it their best, I'm gonna wish them you know, uh, wish them the best and see who else is tough enough to go and, and live up in that environment and recruit in that environment. That's yeah. a, that's a rough slate. And I'm, I, we're living through literally the golden age of Wyoming football. They had been to something like five bowls in my lifetime before Greg Craig bowl became the head coach. They've been to like three bowls in the last five years. So <laughs> I, I could not be happier. They should be terrible. It's a, it's, it is a task to live and work in that place. And they are having a little bit of success and I'm, I'm enjoying it. Well, that's good. Uh, on the future episode, we're 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 gonna have to talk about the the money in the pack pack twelve, like the revenue distribution, because I think it's been, you know, pretty telling what has been what has happened in the in the conference, and it's actually, you know, it doesn't look as bad on paper when you look at the college football playoff payouts. You know, you look at over the last six years, the SECs have. 448 million and the Pac-12s at 402. 
even though they are last, but it does look like it will be separating yeah. uh, pretty pretty soon. E- hey, you bring, you br- you brought up revenue, which makes me I, I want to ask this question because I tweeted I tweeted something out, and I'm I'm no social justice warrior or anything like that. I just it's funny to see some kind of inconsistencies sometimes. And uh, the Pac-12 today announced that they're continuing with the 76 as the title sponsor for the Pac-12 championship. And, you know, I, I just I just thought it was interesting that they went all out for that, like, green and sustainability initiative and the Pac-12 being the conference of sustainability. Uh, <laughs> And and then they today they announced that like the we're going to continue to be sponsored by a non renewable fuel source that is literally antithetical to the idea of sustainability just so they can afford the twelve million combined annual dollars that they spend in rent and commissioner salaries and uh, and somebody tweeted me like uh, Dave Hirsch um, in my replies he said yeah they're sustaining cash flow. Yeah, and I was like, yeah, well, I get that, but I just, I, I, I just thought that that was that was interesting. The, the, that revenue ultimately reveals what your priorities are. As much as you want to put out all these initiatives and everything else that you're involved in, what, 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 it, what it comes down to at the end of the day is what do you do f- to get paid? <laughs> do you, you remember uh, just a couple, just a short couple weeks ago when Ricky Gervais was hosting the award show? And, oh yeah. yeah. And and he said that, you know, all all these, you know, people, actors, Hollywood, all this stuff that they, you know, they want to be, you know, activists for all this stuff, but if the Taliban started a streaming service, they would call their agent. Yeah. Kind of like that. <laughs> that's that's exactly that's exactly the same thing. But uh now it's time for us to move on to our really our inaugural almost basketball talk. Pac-12 basketball is uh, yeah. it's relevant again <laughs> after last season, only having three teams make the tournament, Arizona State, Washington and Oregon. And of those, it was really only really supposed to be two. But then Oregon won the Pac-12 championship and got an automatic berth. So they got in and then they went to the Sweet 16. But the other two teams the uh Arizona State was in a play-in game which they lost so they were number 65 to 68 and Washington lost like it was a pitiful performance the last couple seasons by the Pac-12 except for Oregon and this year they need to get six teams into the tournament they do they i mean uh, you know you're coming off a year where your your tent pole um, in University of Arizona, uh, was sub 500 in Pac-12 play, while the LA schools both had a down year, and Oregon, you know, who absolutely dominated almost in in the out of conference uh, slate, came into the Pac-12 only went 10 and eight, and so it was just extreme mediocrity uh, last year and Arizona state, which has really done a good job of playing well out of conference, but struggling, uh, with mediocrity in conference play. They actually had a a strong showing in conference last year and still almost didn't even (laughs) make the tournament. And so, um, it's, it's definitely been, uh, an interesting turnaround because if you just look at some of the schools that, um, Stanford won 15 games total last year, Right. 
yep. total. USC won 16 games total last year. Right now, uh, Stanford's 15 and three USC's 15 and three. The only reason that Stanford isn't 16 and two and five and zero in the conference is USC had an insanely furious comeback against them uh, a couple of days ago in which Stanford, you know, had the ball with 14 seconds left up five and turned it over <laughs> twice, uh, <laughs> which, which sent it to overtime and, and USC ended up getting that win. And so the teams that were mediocre, uh, have sort of risen to the top. Those two teams aren't even ranked. You have Oregon ranked, Colorado ranked, and Arizona ranked right now. Arizona's struggling a little bit, but they're definitely better than last year. Uh, Colorado's got a really strong lineup that they run out every single night. They might not be the most talented, but they they might be the best collective team. And then whatever Oregon is doing is you you have to. If Oregon is playing on television, you have to watch them because they will turn a game in against... uh, um, the worst team in the country into a buzzer beater situation <laughs> into a and then they'll thriller. T- right. And then they'll, they'll play the best team in the country and they'll turn that into a thriller. Like literally every Oregon game is interesting. And I, I don't know if that's an indictment against them or if they're overplaying their talent level, but Peyton Pritchard is probably the most fun player to watch in the entire conference. And really the only, the only team in the entire conference that maybe, um, is a disappointment is it's, it's amazing how quickly Washington dropped off, but it's okay that it happened to them because everybody else has risen up. So Washington can afford a down year is it, it's really is Utah. Utah to me is the disappointment because they have a top five player in the conference in Timmy Allen, and it's not enough for them. Like, yeah. so that they, they should be better than they are, but everybody else is super competitive. Even Cal is playing some tight game. You know, offensively, Cal is trash right now. But even they're they're playing some teams tough, and so um, I love it. I this they are th- this conference overall is five six times better than they were last year, and you, I could genuinely see them getting five teams for sure in the tournament. But somebody, be it UCLA, Arizona State, or Washington State, is going to have to take that next step. Um, or Oregon State. It, Honestly, it, it Oregon State UC. was expected to be a lot better than they are, and, and and they've kind of struggled in conference play. It won't be UCLA. This team's bad, dude. They're bad on defense. They're, I mean, Mick Cronin is – his post-game press conferences are must-watch TV, TV. He is just blistering people. But but also himself, he's like, yo, we're, we're, not, we're not anywhere close to where we, we need to be. This just think about it. Like, the fact that Oregon-USC – being played on the 23rd on ESPNU. That's a huge game. Yep. Like that was never at any point last year. Did that game matter other than no. to like, yeah. So that's no, I not mean, at all. This and, is, this is big. Yeah. Cause so it, uh, so Arizona's played a, a good non-conference schedule as well. They have, um, they lost to Baylor, lost to Gonzaga. Then they had an ugly loss to St. John's. They lost to Oregon and they lost to Oregon State. The problem, oh, but then they beat Colorado. The problem is, is that Arizona doesn't have any signature wins. Like any anytime they play yeah. a team with a that's ranked, they lose. <laughs> and right. Colorado, um, they beat Dayton, who's a top five team right now. Dayton is a top five team and Colorado beat Oregon. This is a team that is not to be played with and they have an opportunity to get in the 
in the in the tournament and you know do some damage but when you mentioned Oregon though Ralph this team is a head scratcher like you were saying they they're the Jameis Winston of teams right now they'll keep both teams in it they'll keep themselves in it and they'll keep the other team in it they're 15 and 4 the the team that they've lost to they lost to Gonzaga by one point they lost to North Carolina in the in the uh, Atlantis tournament by four points, but that was when North Carolina was good and they had Cole right. Anthony. <laughs> right. So this is like the one year that you could say a four point loss to North Carolina is a bad loss. Yes. We're that's in a their really worst good situation. Yeah. That's called their worst. Oregon's worst loss is to North Carolina, right. which is incredible. Um, they lost to Colorado, which they haven't won in Boulder in like seven tries or something like that. Um, and they lost at Washington State, which was just a bizarre head scratcher. And then you come back and beat Washington, it like in a after being down sixteen points with ten minutes left. Yeah, I uh, I'm I'm very intrigued by University of Arizona. Um, if you've watched these freshmen, holy bananas, Josh Green. Um, Josh Green is a guy that I'm like, oh man, this guy's gonna have a 12 year NBA career playing in, in some Greg Popovich system, you know, where he averages six, five, and five, but everyone loves him and he's always on a playoff team. You know, I I think the world of him. Zeke Naji is probably the best freshman in the whole conference, and I, I'm uh, they don't use him enough, or maybe teams are starting to figure him out, and that's the problem. And then Nico Mannion is just you know he's on another level as a passer, and he's he's been uh, very very special to watch. Um, but Sean Miller, I just he he's he's the being able to afford the nicest car in the neighborhood does not make you a good driver. The car never makes the driver right ever. And I've watched year after year uh, of Sean Miller bring the absolute cream of the crop talent to Tucson and find some way to, you know, get in a fender bender, you know, whether that was, you know, not uh, well with Lori, the fact that they didn't, you know, go further in the NCAA tournament when they had Lori Markin at their disposal is baffling to me. Uh, the fact that they didn't just live through DeAndre Ayton when there would have been absolutely no answer for him um, is completely baffling. The, what happened last year? You know, everyone said, oh, we were devoid of talent. They had like five rivals, 100 players on that roster and missed the NCAA tournament. And this year, they've got a few head scratching losses when they are playing with like two five stars in Green and Mannion and Zeke Naji, who was, I believe, a four star recruit, but has proven himself to be probably the best freshman in the conference. And they're pairing it with a bunch of veteran talent, and it's still not resulting in them being dominant. And so um, uh, I don't think there's a better recruiter alive than Sean Miller, but there's probably six or seven coaches in the Pac 12 that could get more out of those players than him. You know, and and is that is that just the trade off that University of Arizona is willing to make? Um, I don't know. I, I just I do not feel like he has done the best job with what he has been blessed with and what he's helped earn down there. And I, it always kind of surprised me that he didn't ultimately end up paying the price for you know two of his assistant coaches committing violations that resulted in one being terminated and one being jailed you know, that that never came back to bite him when he hasn't necessarily built up the capital of putting together a championship team. 
So I think we're in the middle of another year kind of like that right now. And they already have five losses. And I, after the first couple of games of this season, I didn't think this team would lose five games all year, but they managed to do it. Um, you know, is there anything you think that Sean Miller could do? Could, Sean Miller's recruiting class for next year is already absurd. Is there anything Sean Miller could do that you think might cost him his job? No, no, man. You don't recruit at this level and have your job be in jeopardy. He, this dude is walking through the raindrops. He survived the FBI. He survived being on tape. This dude has survived everything. Uh, a, a, uh, a disappointing regular season when you still can win the Pac-12 tournament, you still can go to the tournament and make noise. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely, absolutely not. I mean, sometimes these ratings and stars on these kids don't turn out to be what they are. Sometimes their heads get big, they, the lights get too bright. No, man, college, college basketball is a totally different business than college football. You don't have to, you know, make the Sweet 16 every single year. Sometimes you can get knocked out in the first round, but you need to follow it up the next year with an elite eight. You need to follow it up the next year with a sweet 16 with a good run. You know what I mean? Like send guys to the NBA, get nationally televised games. Truthfully, you only in a 20 year coaching career really only need to win one, one, one NCAA tournament. That's it. Yeah. And you're a legend. Yeah. But how many, how many tournaments do you have to do? You, do you get knocked out of early, you know, or by teams that probably didn't have any business doing it to you before that becomes your your legacy? You know, and he's won three Pac-12 championships in the last five years, so you can't say that he's not doing his job. He's also a three-time Pac-12 Coach of the Year since 2011. He's been there a long time. They're always competitive, but it feels like they always sort of um, disappoint as well. And that's, you know, that that's the thing that I I feel like, you know, is it going to come back to get him at any point in time? Because, I mean, they were they think about the team they took into the tournament. They were the number 12 team in the country uh, and they had on their bench they have, they brought in even Lorenzo Romar to be an assistant you know they were 14 and 4 they dominated the Pac-12 this is the 2017 2018 season and uh they they had just an absolutely killer um recruiting class that they brought in they paired them with great veterans sort of the way that it that it is this year and they get in and they lose to Buffalo in the first round by 20 dude that's that is unacceptable. That that sort of thing makes people question your coaching acumen. And as soon as people start questioning that, then you may be fired. Then you are on the hot seat. But finishing out the conference, though, I think that when you have – so you have um, Washington, like we were talking about, who was picked to finish way higher – is now in the their two and four in conference play. Oh, and and at the game. So if, if you're not like if you're, I have a lot of Oregon Washington people on my on my Twitter feed. And do you know what the biggest thing of the weekend that drove that actually ended up with Mario Cristobal taking a a sub tweet at Washington was Jimmy Lake got on the microphone at. 
Washington, you know, they they parade out the the head coaches and, you know, they talk to the fans, encourage them. It's like a pep rally at the game. And, you know, and all is great because Washington's up all of this at halftime. Jimmy Lake says that Washington has the number one recruiting class in the Pac-12. And that they own the and that they own the Pac-12 in the North or what whatever. And this sent Oregon and Washington fans into a tizzy because <laughs> I can't find what everybody's like, you can't find one single place where Washington has a better recruiting class than than Oregon. Am I wrong, Ralph? No, this was it's it's not competitive. Like this is not um you know, I, I don't know where he's getting that from. Like 24 seven disagrees, rivals disagrees, yes, but yeah, but he, um, so is that a lie or, 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 or can, or can he be like, no, the, these are alternative facts. Uh, there's, there's, there's two different we're number ones, right? Like there is, independent um consideration and then there's just like fandom right so like we're number one is something that you can say about you know what you personally believe it's not like he didn't get up and he didn't say like the number one rated right he just said the number one right (laughs) so now we're so so we gotta pull pull the semantics out well, there, but there's what I'm saying is there's nothing stopping Kyle Whittingham from doing the same exact thing, except for just like a complete lack of ability to be dynamic in group settings, right? <laughs> like, the, so there's there's anybody could say that, anybody could say that we have the best, right? But when I think when you assign the number to it, people are like, oh, well, he's talking about like the ratings and everything like that, and that's not, you know, it's not the case. Oregon's was the top one. Washington did have a very good recruiting class, but like if Oregon could swap out, if Washington could swap out their recruiting class uh, with Oregon's, I think they'd do it. Oh yeah. I think they do it. If, if, if one for one, one for one, I think that most PAC 12 teams wouldn't give it a second thought. They'd take what Oregon brought in instead of what they brought in just flat out trade all 20 plus players. And I, I would count Washington am, among them just because, you, you know, even Washington's real identity is very much on the defensive side of the ball. And I feel like that's really where they got dominated this year um, by Oregon on the recruiting trail. Again, two top linebackers to me personally in the country yeah, they are both Savelle going Small. to play in Eugene. Yeah. They got Savelle Smalls though, right? They did get, they did get Savelle Smalls, but they got him out of their own, backyard they should get Savelle Smalls that should be expected um but you know the two best linebackers in in the country are going to a state that they don't live in you know to to play football in to play football on a defense that it's not even like they're known for producing world-class linebackers at the next level yep so you can't this is not a time when you can you know, and the tweets are really funny. The tweets that came out of that are hilarious. Just the back and forth. And it's still going on three days later. Um, 
they're all just sort of ripping each other, uh, which is which is nice. And uh, Jimmy Lake's Twitter game is pretty fun. Uh, did you see him tweet the uh, the purple Mustang? No, I didn't. I think it's a Mustang. I'll I'll tag you. It might be a Charger. I can't tell from the tweet, but he's just in this gorgeous purple car. And it says West Coast Dogs. Here we come. The coaches are off the leash. I'll tag you in it because it's. It's great. Like he's really stepped up his social media. So maybe, maybe his style. Cause we really haven't seen what a Jimmy Lake team, like a team is like it, how, how out there he's going to be and how personable he's going to be. Um, and maybe this is just his personality coming through now that he's taken the wheel or whatever. Uh, but he's definitely, he's been fun on social media the last few days. Yeah. I, I see it. I see it. Yeah, there. Yeah, man, the dogs are coming. I I like this though. I I love it for yeah. the conference. I love the fact that anything to engage fans and make them care more. Because the more everybody's fan base cares more, the better the conference, the better off the conference will be because they will demand good leadership. They will demand the TV the games be on television despite the pac 12 in their press release with the schedule saying 45 games on uh fs1 espn and um and fox and then another 35 nationally televised games on the pac 12 network the pac 12 network is not national right but we this conference needs this conference just needs that swag like it just it needs it Yep. It needs it. This is the West Coast. Like the, the, it should be part of your your identity. You know, most of these players are coming from California. They're used to a really specific environment in which they play. Like, and that is that you if 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 you're the big man on campus, you walk around like you're the big man on campus, and so you kind of need that bravado. And, you know, I think Mario Cristobal brings it in the form of his enthusiasm. I think you're seeing it on display a little bit from Jimmy Lake. Uh, You got Herm Edwards with the old school cool uh, being backed by Antonio Pierce with like that, that uh, the, the, the SoCal swagger that, that he brings to the table. Um, You know, I just, I think that that like, this is a cool place to play football is going to be something that contributes to getting the Pac-12 back on track those personalities are important because they sort of reflect the surrounding culture just like i think it's important for kyle Whittingham to carry himself the way that he does in the market that he's in um you know i i think that it's it's just it's it's important to be able to have that in your back pocket and that's something that usc really hasn't had you know the last few years and if if university of arizona can get some success if they can figure out things down there then you know that's bringing the cool is what is what Kevin Sumlin sort of specialized in and making it, you know, you know, you know how uh, crazy it was to me that like people would choose Texas A&M over any other number of school. Texas A&M is a completely different culture. Like football is king there and you can be a king playing football and that's always appealing, but like it's, it is different. (laughs) Life in college station is different. And you had to have some sort of swagger to get people to commit to being part of that process. And I thought that that was, I was like, man, if Kevin Sumlin can be, do that for Tucson, he can do it anywhere. And that hasn't been the case so far, but making the PAC 12 a cool place to play football and having these personalities that are fun and engaging is, is, is just, 
there's nothing but upsides. And, and I know that, I know that it might feel like I'm talking out both sides of my mouth um, because of some of the things that I've said about Mike Leach's extracurricular stuff, but Mike Leach is literally a Facebook boomer. Like that's, he's, he's out there shit posting memes into the ether that that's not, that's not, it's funny, but it's not cool. It's not hip. Like kids aren't like, Oh, Mike Leach acts exactly like uh, my uncle who we fight with at the Thanksgiving table. You know, <laughs> it's, it's fun for adults <laughs> to laugh at, but it's not something kids look at and be like, Oh yeah. Like that, that dude is that, that's a dude I could definitely you know, play for. I want to be like him. I want to walk like him. I want to talk like him. You know, I want to live his life eventually. You know, nobody pictures themselves sitting around, you know, chuckling at a, at a, at a, a, a meme of a bear exposing itself to a camera. Like, I can't wait to be that person. <laughs> like, you know, you just, you, you need that, you need that swagger in this conference. And I, I, I'm more than happy that Jimmy Lake seems to be, you know, in conjunction with Cristobal Edwards and a few other coaches, that oh, they're bringing that to the table. I, I love it, but the, you know who who has the biggest swagger in the whole Pac-12, though. The biggest swagger in the whole Pac Pac-12 is not by a football player. It's not by a basketball player. It is by a women's basketball player, which I must applaud yeah. the Pac-12 as down as the as in in football. In football, the Pac-12 had a better year. Than than in twenty than twenty eighteen twenty nineteen, better year. They also had a um a better year, and well, they're having a better year this year in basketball than last year in basketball. But the if you look at the best thing the Pac twelve has going right now, it's women's basketball. Oh, by far, yeah. You have five Oregon, of the top eighteen teams. Five yes. of the top eighteen. Yes, yes, it is. It is like the SEC in football, right? Right now, everybody yeah. is there, and the biggest swagger of them all is Sabrina Ionescu, which uh, she's number twenty for Oregon, and you got a chance to see her in person against Arizona State. And the thing that I I love players who play with heart and passion, and just because I'm a big Kobe fan, so I love that Mamba mentality person, like. No new friends, actually no friends at all, except for the ones on my team. We're playing hard. We're, I mean, like I, I, when I watch her, I, she's must see TV and it feels like I'm watching Diana Taurasi, Sue Bird, like, um, you know, some of the greatest women's college basketball players of all time that I enjoyed watching. Like she makes me watch. Yeah. You know, she, I, I tweeted this out and I was like, I know this is a weird comparison. I know nobody will really care, but she reminds me of like in shape Boris Diaw. There is literally nothing that she can't do on the court and she makes it look unbelievably easy. Like, and, and, it, and I mean, it helps that Oregon is filled with shooters, athletic shooters. This is one of the funnest teams, women's teams, or men's teams that I've, you know, I've ever watched. They're just super interesting. Everybody can ball. They run. And Sabrina is able to sort of govern everything that goes on on the court. Um, and she's just, she's incredibly marketable. Like, and the fact that she's been very out there and forthright about the fact that she is under marketed 
is one of the coolest things about her. Like they, they clipped team USA in a scrimmage, which is one of the reasons why like the second that that happened, I was like, all right, I gotta go out and see them. And I actually like my wife and I had a date night plan and everything. We got a sitter. Well, not, not just, we got a sitter for our four kids. Like her parents, my in-laws gifted us a weekend alone together. And for Christmas. So like we were expected <laughs> to go out and make the most of it. And I told my wife, I was like, Hey, so Sabrina Ionescu is coming to town. And part of our date weekend is going to be spent at, uh, at a women's basketball game. And like, uh, you know, one of, and, and one of the reasons I think she was cool with it is, uh, Robbie Ryan, who is one of Arizona state's best players, a four year starter, uh, for them is somebody who I've known since she was five years old. Like when I lived up in Northern Wyoming and I used to coach, um, you know, youth soccer and youth basketball and everything like that, uh, her older brothers and sisters all played. And so she'd be at the YMCA all day, just kind of tagging along as a little kindergartner. And so I just made her like my ball girl and she'd hand out orange slices and stuff like that. And now she's, you know, playing for Arizona state, a team, you know, a college that I actually cover professionally. And so that's, you know, so I, anytime I can get out to see uh, Arizona state women's basketball and root her on, I, I, I do that because you, you can take the journalist hat off when you've known somebody for that long. And so, you know, I think she was, she was cool with it, but I was like, you, but you need to see this Oregon team for yourself. So I convinced my wife to go and, you know, and, and it was, ASU actually ended up winning the the game, which was crazy. But, but after watching Sabrina Ionescu for, for um, a full game, she's like, that's the, by far the best women's basketball player I've ever seen. And, uh, and she didn't even have really all that good of a game by her own standards. I think she went for 24, 10 and four, and she almost averages a triple double anyway. Um, she just, she's such a good passer. And my favorite thing that she's done so far is back in November when she tweeted at Nike and said, why aren't you making Oregon's women's basketball jerseys yet? And they because made, and they sold out in like, made them. Yep. And sold out immediately. Immediately. And dude, dude, I, I had to call so many people to get a Sabrina INSQ jersey. You got one. Yes. Wild. Dude. Dude, I, I I had to call in favors to get one, favors, and so, and and I don't even I so I have a lot of jerseys around my my house, but I never wear them. However, this is a jersey of a player that I proudly that I when when I uh, go to the game, I will proudly have on in person. Like like yes, I got mine on. Yeah. So they and they it took two hours and two minutes for them to sell out of the initial release um, of the Sabrina Ionescu jerseys, which is just the coolest thing ever. And also it happened four days after she initially tweeted. So they got on it right away. Um, But also it sort of exposes the really weird side of this, right? Is that, you know, you more than anybody that I know, more than anybody I know, you've been on the whole name, image, and likeness thing. You've been on top of it. You've been talking about every angle of it while also kind of being an advocate for the benefits of it. So these jerseys, just like the Madden games, where we all know the players are actually the players, they're not the players. So this jersey that Nike made, this number 20 jersey, it's not a Sabrina Ionescu jersey, right? Like if Sabrina Ionescu was to sue Nike, which she would never do, she goes to the Nike school and she realizes this is all part of ultimately building the brand that she's going to be able to cash in on for the rest of her life. 
But if she was able to point to the direct like correlation or uh, correlation causation, all of that of like, hey, I tweeted, why don't you make this jersey? You made this jersey and I literally helped you sell it out and saw no money from it. Nike would have to come back and say, like, this is just a coincidence. It's not actually your jersey. And then they'd have to go back and prove, like, we we were going to make a number 20 women's jersey. Like, wh- I don't even know how they would go about that. But it sort of exposes the seedy underbelly of college jersey sales when they don't benefit the student athlete directly. Yep, exactly. Exactly, dude. It is a mess. It is. I mean, it's like when, you know, if you were to be at Arizona State and they were to magically start making number five football jerseys, who do you think that would be of? Huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We just uh, we just randomly yes. chose number number five after last year, randomly choosing number three. Yeah. Yeah, if oh at 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 USC, oh we randomly chose number nine. It was just it was just a coincidence. At UCLA, oh we randomly chose number one. Ah, uh, you know everybody chooses number number one, right? Uh, like, come on, bro. Like n- nobody believes you. You need more yeah. people. But and the the moral of the story is Sabrina Ionescu has over twenty triple doubles. <laughs> And so I, more than just, any you, man or woman in, yeah. in in college basketball history. So if you haven't, I mean, just watch just everybody always talks about like, well, I'd watch women's basketball if it was more exciting. Well, guess what? Like, no, I'll tell you right now, straight up I, those people, I understand where they're coming from and not every single one of these uh, top five teams in the Pac-12 would appeal to them. But this Oregon team runs the seven seconds or less yeah. Suns and they runs the Golden 80, State Warriors offense. Yeah, eight, 84 or 86 points points a game, and they've scored over 100 like four or five times this season. They, it is, they it, is aste- it is aesthetically pleasing basketball with the right athletes plugged in to run the right offense. And uh, and then it should just go to show you that they haven't – they're not winning every time in the Pac-12. Like that's how good – uh, the, 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 the PAC 12 has been. And so I, I would just, I, I, I understand that it has, it has never been effective for people to come out and say like, you know, you, you should really watch women's basketball. You can't guilt people into watching something that they, they're not interested in, in the first place. So let me just paint the picture of saying like, reward yourself by watching Oregon women's basketball. If you get the opportunity to, Oh my like, God, it, it's not. It's not me saying you should watch it and you should feel bad that you don't. I'm saying like you're missing, you're missing it. Yep. Don't miss it. Don't. It's and 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 you know and I'm so, I'm I'm I, I'm not out here like trying to be a virtue signaling women's advocate. Like look at me, <laughs> look at me. If that was the case, this wouldn't be the first time that we really went into depth on women's sports on the Pac-12 Apostles podcast. I'm telling you, this is fun as hell. Do yourself a favor, watch a game. Yep. Yeah, and and the crowds are like they they outdraw men's crowds. Yeah, which I mean, is- I, pfft, I the, there were people. I I was in line buying my ticket that day because I I I I tried to buy uh, season tickets to ASU women's basketball, and it realized that makes me a booster, which would 
make me not able to speak to recruits, which is part of my job uh, for rivals. Oh, wow. So if I, if I go, I have to buy single game tickets and it's the difference between paying 20 bucks a pop or 60 bucks a season. So that's not super fun. But when I was in line, I talked to four or five other people who just said like, I'm here to see Sabrina INSQ. That's it. I've never been to a women's basketball game in all of my time as a student at Arizona state. I'm here to see her. Yep. Dude. That's huge. And and they would be even better if Sedona Prince was able to to play. And on the next episode, we have to talk oh, about Oh, God. Her. Dude, uh, this is do one we of have the to? Mo- <laughs> tell, tell me that this is not one of the worst stories about college sports that you have ever seen. Yeah. So and if you yeah. and if you don't know. Uh, Sedona Price, uh, Prince, I don't know why I call her Price, Sedona Prince. She is a, she played at the University of Texas. She got, she had a major injury while playing for USA Basketball. She sat out her freshman year at Texas, transfers to Oregon, gets denied immediate eligibility, and then ends up personally having to be responsible for $22,000 worth of medical bills that Oregon then tried to pay but NCAA rules won't let them pay and Texas won't pay for it. Yeah. And USA basketball can't either. Yeah. Bro, what kind yeah, of no- stupidity is this? But we can talk about that in depth on the next one, but but what what are your initial <laughs> reactions? Uh that I'm I'm upset for her for and, you know, and, and I, I see a lot of people just sort of blindly tagging the NCAA, like tweeting the middle finger emoji and stuff like that. And um, I think you're going to I think this is my, probably maybe my initial reaction is this might be like a catch more flies with with honey type deal of like there needs to just be some, a lot of people imploring them to do the right thing. And not, I, I think that one of the issues right now is people are wrapping this into already prepackaged animosity for the NCAA and just saying like, oh, this is another example of how the NCAA screws student athletes. And I think it needs to be looked at um, uh, the opposite way of like, hey, NCAA, like what a great opportunity for you to show that you can do right by student athletes by making sure that this loophole, which could potentially affect others in the future, finds its way to getting closed and does so in a way that is visible to others. Like, what a great opportunity for you, NCAA, because I just don't think anything's going to be accomplished by saying, like, I've been mad at the NCAA for 10 years for a myriad of reasons, and this is the cherry on top of that Sunday. F you, you're the worst. Like, I think we need the NCAA to come out and find a way to make this right, because the appeal of collegiate athletics is is a, is a debt-free existence, and to be caught up in the worst of amateur athletics as well as the worst of the healthcare system at the same time is just it, it's unconscionable I 100% agree with you Ralph 100% and it's 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 de- deplorable what is happening to this young lady but um but 
Thank you guys for listening to the Pac-12 Apostles podcast. You guys are the people that make this podcast go. We do it for you guys. Send in any questions, comments, anything that you have to I'm mad at unafraidshow.com. I-M-M-A-D at unafraidshows.com. Leave a rating. Hit us up on Twitter. He's at, at Ralph Amsden. And I'm at George Reister with only one T, please. Um, peace out. Catch you guys <laughs> later. <laughs>